Today on Founder Journeys, we get a behind-the-scenes look into the world of venture capital. Today's guest is Boris Wirtz, founder of Version 1 Ventures. We get a look into how he himself built his fund into what it is today, his own journey, and uh, what makes Version 1 so successful. Three, two, one. Hey, what's up, everyone? We're back at it again with another episode of Founder Journeys. Today is a person that's actually really special to me because he's been a mentor, but also an uh, inspiration for me and my journey. Uh, Boris Wirtz. One of the founding partners of Version One, an early stage venture capital fund based in Vancouver and San Francisco. He is a very accomplished and successful entrepreneur in his own right. Uh, Boris, thank you for joining us and uh, taking the time to share your wisdom with our audience. Great. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to this. I want to dive into the experiences that you've encountered to get you to where you are today, but also want to dive into the notion of building a venture fund. A lot of people are just um, mistaken or or naive to think that a venture fund is just a glorified bank and then you're full of money, but it is a very daunting task. I know because I've tried to build funds as well and not, not as successful as you, but it, it is a challenge and, and it is a entrepreneurial journey of your own because you have to build the brand, you have to go raise money, you have to execute against the business plan and, and strategy. So let's, let's rein it back, give our audience a little background about you, who you are, um, the, the companies that you've built, and uh, we'll kind of transition into talking more about version one and, and that journey. Sure, happy to. So uh, it takes you back a little bit, uh, about 20 years ago in 99, started a company back in Germany uh, that was Internet 1.0, a company called Just Books, a marketplace for used rare out print books. Uh, we sold that company after we built it up to Europe's market leader to 8books, a Canadian company, in 2001, and uh, I came over um, to become chief operating officer of the combined entity uh, a year later. I thought I would uh, you know, stick around for a couple of years, go back to Germany, and uh, uh, in country, met my, met my wife, and the rest is history. Uh, stayed with eight books. We, we built it up till, um, till we sold it to Amazon in 2008. So eight fantastic years of the early, early stages of you know, trying to find product market fit and getting office ready, hiring the first employees to, in the end, co-running a company of about 140 people, a quarter of a billion of um, transactional volume going through the marketplace. Um, and so after that, I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to do another startup. Um, so I thought I would try out the investing thing. So I took a lot of the proceeds I, I made from the Amazon sale and uh, started investing in, in private companies and tech companies. Uh, first in Vancouver, then a little bit broader Pacific Northwest, then kind of uh, you know, across North America and developed a thesis, developed a track record. And then four years in, I really decided that I want to do it long term and started version one venture as a, as a proper institutional venture fund. We currently invest out of our third fund, which is a $57 million early state fund. Um, really focus on SaaS companies and marketplaces and emerging sectors like healthcare, energy and climate and uh, crypto. Yeah, that's that's actually a really cool thing as as well. You're you've got the guide to marketplaces, which is an awesome guide. It's a um, uh, kind of like a bible of how to build a marketplace, and it's revised almost every year. And and there's always new insight. But you're also not afraid to jump into new emerging sectors like crypto and and blockchain. Um, I, I do want to take a step back and and talk a little bit about that journey to flip from being the entrepreneur building a company to being the entrepreneur building a venture fund. There's a lot of misconceptions about uh, VCs and, and what they do. Uh, maybe to give our audience a little behind the scenes look at what it took to build version one into what it is today. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's a, 
uh, a lot of people want to be VCs these days uh, and uh, want to launch a career in, in, in venture. And I would just say two things. I mean, the first one is the mindset of a VC is a very different one than the one of an entrepreneur, right? Uh, and I think being ready to kind of change the mindset and, and change the approach to, to things is, is crucial. And um, what, what is really at the core of it as an entrepreneur, you're the one that takes a decision. You're the one that, that drives the strategy, drives the vision, motivates people. And you're really kind of the, the player on the field. As an investor, you're the coach. You're not the player, right? And you can give advice, you can give guidance, but ultimately the, the players on the field execute on the, the, the vision. Um, and there's, you have to be okay sitting on the sidelines, right? And let other people take the decisions. And that's a really, really tough transition from entrepreneur to investor and kind of from an entrepreneur mindset to an investor mindset. And I think every, everybody who wants to become an investor needs to be okay with that, that mindset. I think the second thing also, uh, listen, investing is, looks easy, is actually really, really tough. And it's, it's an apprentice business that takes a long time to prove out you're, if you're actually good at it because you know feedback loops uh, are not uh, a quarter, they're, they're not a year, they're usually often a decade, right? And it takes a long time to show, to, to, to show yourself if you're any good at it, if you're taking good investment decisions. And yeah, I read somewhere, um, actually, I think it was a tweet that uh, came out today, where somebody said, it's easy to write checks. It's hard to really show an internal rate of return. And, and you have uh, obligations to limited partners that have invested in you to give them a return. And so um, I also see a lot of exit entrepreneurs that want to become VCs. Uh, I, I still have this belief that the best investors, especially at the early stage, seed stage, are exit entrepreneurs because they know how to build a business and not the investment bankers. But a lot of them that get into the VC world really get dissuaded by year three or four because they realize they're managing other people's money and they have to be accountable to them. And there's a lot of reporting and other aspects of the business other than just living vicariously for the entrepreneurs. Correct. Yeah. And as you said before, I think venture is also a business building exercise in itself, right? You, as you said before, you, you're building a brand, you're trying to get better at the investment decisions. You're, you need to raise money from LPs. You need to report back to these LPs. Uh, you need to build your team uh, and, and so on. So uh, it's, it's certainly an exercise in itself of, of building a business, um, but just the business of investing. Like other founders and, and other entrepreneurs, you go through ups and downs. What are some of the, the challenges that um, VCs face? Tell us about the Listen, struggles that VCs have. Yeah, so I think as a, on, on, on a few levels, um, the, the, the job kind of gets, gets complicated and, and difficult. I mean, the first one is uh, everybody going into investment business, right, is trying to figure out what are the bets I should place? Right? What, what are the companies I should invest in? Right? And you develop a thesis only to see within a few, few years, once you found like you had a really good thesis that actually it doesn't work out or it only partially works out, right? And you start from scratch, it's like, oh my God, I just don't know anything anymore. And you start from scratch developing a thesis and trying to get conviction. Uh, and and you, you build it up again, this conviction only to see that perhaps it's not, not uh, going well. And I think, one of the real big challenges, like investment success, is a lot driven by luck, right? And the question, if you uh, said yes or no to one company that then 
uh, goes on to become a really big, big company can make or break your investment uh, career, right? And it's uh, at that moment not obvious if you should have said yes or no, right? And it can, it can certainly drive you crazy um, to look back at these decisions that are like, oh, I should have said yes. Why did I pass on this company? Or otherwise, like, why did I say yes to this company that didn't turn out uh, to, to be? Um, but often there's a lot of re real luck in, in, involved and uh, that's really tough to reconcile with your own conviction and your own decision-making, right? Um, I think uh, the, the, uh, the, the other really tough thing in BC is, is certainly it's, it's a very, it's, it's a category that gets a lot of media attention, right? Uh, it has a lot of competition, right? And so you continuously in this virtual uh, uh, race with other VCs, other investors to get into the best deals, to show an, an investment progress, show returns to investors. Uh, and it's, it's not like just silently in your corner building something, but it's a very public uh, exercise of, of competing with, with, with other investors for kind of the best deals and the best entrepreneurs. And then one of the conversations that's kind of sprung up quite a bit in these founder journeys um, that we've talked to other entrepreneurs is the glorification of, of raising money and, and how that's um, uh, applauded. But it's just the beginning. Like once you've raised money, it's like, yeah, it's a great milestone. You convince somebody to invest in you, but you convince them on a plan and a strategy. Now you have to go and execute against that. How do you as a VC work with the entrepreneur through that process and then hold them accountable. Like, okay, let me take you off of cloud nine here and now you have to go and execute. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would even take a step uh, further back and, uh, and you know, kind of, we, we often ask entrepreneurs that pitch us, uh, you know, if they really think that actually raising venture capital is the right strategy for them, right? Uh, you know, venture capital is a real outlier business. We're, we, we're trying to invest in companies that can, uh, become 50 or 60 or 70 times the money we invested. And that that it's only possible if you have a runaway success uh, in a really large space. And not every company can have that, right? Grizzoff, again, you know, the, the problem they're working on or the, the market they're in uh, or the ambitions of the founders, right? And that doesn't mean that these companies that shouldn't raise venture capital are bad companies. They actually can be great companies, right? They can be profitable and they can provide tons of joy um, and, and uh, happiness for the founders as they build these companies, but they might just not be the best companies to raise venture capital, right? So I think the first step is really um, to really decide for you as a founder, do I run a company, do I wanna run a company that actually becomes venture capital fundable uh, or, or not? And again, there's many other ways to, to kind of fund the company, fund companies, but you don't have to have uh, venture capital. But, but obviously, uh, once you raise venture capital, right, the expectations are high that uh, you, know, you, you, you turn that capital into revenues and into growth uh, and most likely into the next round of financing. Right? And um, as you say, it's only the, a starting point. And uh, you know, usually it doesn't get easier. I mean, there's just different challenges over time and uh, higher ceilings to break through. Um, and so it's kind of an ongoing, ongoing uh, kind of real tough fight to, to uh, kind of get to the next level, scale the company, grow the company, and build something that is, that is really generational and lasting. 
And and as you are working with an entrepreneur, you've made an investment. You said that you're more of a coach sitting on the sidelines working with them. How do you determine when to step in and when to help them or where they actually need coaching? Or do you wait for them to come to you? Yeah, I think it's a give and take. I mean, first of all, I think you need to be close to the business and to the founder and have a, a really good, trustworthy relationship to even understand what's on the founder's mind, right? Um, generally, I feel, um, you know, kind of the entrepreneurial journey is is really a, a bunch of ups and downs. And us as investors should be partners that are not amplifying those moods and those mood swings and ups and downs, but actually help to, to steer in the other direction. So if founders are down because, you know, a, a product launch failed or they lost a big customer, et cetera, you're not the one that kind of uh, screams and get nervous, et cetera. You, you really have to at that moment, like really cheerlead and, and point to the good things that they have achieved and, and, and trying to, to put them on the right track again. And if things go, go uh, super well, then perhaps you have to be the one that, that points out what else we can do and where else we can improve. Um, so I'm a big fan of, of kind of being a, a, a partner that doesn't amplify these ups and downs, but, but is, is kind of more on the contrary, uh, kind, kind of tries to smooth them out. And so that definitely requires a lot of open communication between you and the founders. And how do you, I know from talking to a lot of founders, they they want to have positive relationship with their investors, but there is a stigmatism of, of I can't show weaknesses. I can't show signs of, of, of struggle with my investors. But we as investors know that, no, you want to see that because you never know how I might be able to help you or who I know that can get you through this problem uh, without proper communication. So how do you encourage your portfolio CEOs and founders to uh, open those lines of communication to you? Yeah, I think it's a few things. I mean, first of all, I think even in the uh, in the investment making process, we always give very honest and transparent feedback, right? And are, are open in discussing the questions we have with the founders we we think about investing in. And I think if you get tremendous amount of pushback from a founder, right, when you want to discuss these questions and you just never get straight answers, I think that's for us kind of a red flag for for not investing, not wanting to invest, because we assume that. We're not going to have uh, honest discussions down the road either right, if we can't have it in the investment-making process. So I think, first of all, as a firm, I think we self-select for founders that love getting feedback, love having open discussions and, and kind of an honest exchange of ideas and, and, and concepts. I think the, the second thing is you continuously have to be close to the company, really understanding what's going on, ask a lot of questions. Don't be descriptive about what needs to be done, but rather ask, you know, what's on your mind? What keeps you up at night? Uh, what are you worried about? Uh, are you happy with the current situation? Like, what are the team members uh, you love working with? Are there team members um, that kind of make, make me make you um, angry and you can't work with them? Like, you know, so I think you, you stay close and you ask a lot of questions versus just uh, kind of, describing what needs to be done um, and, and rather be that, 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 that coach um, in that, that uh, uh, is always there for them if, if they need any advice. And, and then last but not least, I think, and, and that's coming back to, to you know, the backgrounds that some investors have. If you, were, if you were a former entrepreneur like I was, I think you certainly have more empathy for the founder journey. 
and can respond a little bit more authentically when they have run into problems because you've seen it before. You've been there before. You have the same challenges, the same problems, and you can not only recognize them a little bit earlier than, than the founder because you've seen them before, but you can also kind of give, give better advice and more empathetic advice. And that kind of it's a great segue into um, one of the topics that we've talked quite a bit on in these founder journeys is, is the taboo topics. It's, um, it's, it's very glorified to be an entrepreneur, but uh, the reality is there's a lot of ups and downs, there's a lot of challenges. Uh, the entrepreneur journey is oftentimes a lonely one. And so you as, as a VC, you've got, um, you got a great reputation and, and uh, I, obviously hindsight, I know a lot of things that you've done and, and what you, uh, how you treat entrepreneurs, but how is it that we don't need to go in, I don't want to talk about anybody specifically, but how do you detect when somebody is really struggling, whether at a mental level or a, a uh, personal family level, um, and, and intervene or try to step in to support them through that? Because those are personal things a lot of people don't talk about. Uh, but uh, we all know it's like found as a serious issue. There's been a lot of uh, documented founder suicides and, and things like that. And uh, mental health is something that is now starting to be openly talked about. But uh, how do you try to preempt things or, or step in and try to help somebody? Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a few ways. The first one is certainly build up a relationship outside of the purely official communication channels, right? I think it's really tough for a um, founder to open up in a board meeting when there's like two or three investors in attendance, right? But it's easier for a founder to open up if you have a one-to-one -one call with them and you actually ask them, uh, you know, about how they're doing. Um, I think the second thing is exactly what, what kind of following up on that point, uh, I think you have to find ways to actually check in with them how they're doing, right? And how they're feeling. Uh, and and not just talk about the business, uh, and not just talk about expectations uh, uh, and and stuff like that, but really understand on in their private life, right? Um, understand, uh, ask the questions about you know how, how they're personally doing, right? Um, I think besides an investor, probably even more important usually is co-founders you can really trust, right? And so we're, we're certainly big fans of teams where the, the founders know each other since a long time, trust each other, right? Um, because it doesn't matter how much you address the, the, the former two points I just mentioned about investors. It's still a kind of hierarchical relationship and you're never going to completely get away from that, right? But, um, you know, if you have a co-founder that you trust with several co-founders that you trust and are really close with, it's probably the biggest asset any any founder can have, right? And I remember just my own personal relationship with, with my founders. Uh, you know, I had some some amazing co-founders. We were in total five co-founders in my business, uh, and and you know, one that wasn't that great. And it made all the difference to have really close. Um, relationship with my co-founders in, in, in the bad times that sometimes you all went through. It's actually, you nailed the segue of <laughs> my next question is specifically about co-founders and, and conflicts with co-founders. Uh, again, from an investor's seat, you have a different perspective and, and you oftentimes can see things coming and brewing. What are things that you think that uh, founders can do to mitigate 
challenges and conflicts uh, with with co-founders, and that oftentimes does spark um, depression and things like that because you um, kind of tied into relationships. Like you can't se- separate a, a co-founder uh, easily from your company, but uh, conflicts do happen. And so how yeah. do you as an investor help in that regard? And, you know, I think, uh, you know, coming back to a little bit of a similar answer give to one of your previous questions, I think we self-select for uh, very strong co-founder relationships, right? Um, and so when we make an investment, we would never make an investment just in, in one founder we see and, and not seeing the other. We, we always talk to the whole team. We love to see them in action together, how they interact in a pitch. Uh, how do they respect each other? How do they trust each other? Um, do they respect who's responsible for what? When you ask a question into the, the whole room, like does everybody know who should should answer that question or do all jump in and want to trump uh, trump each other on, on the, the quickness of the response and the smartness of the response? So I think... You know, we as investors, we self-select for, for founding teams that, that work really, really well. Um, but having said that, even then, you know, as the company matures and the company grows, as rela- kind of relationship kind of evolve, you sometimes get co-founder conflicts. And it's unfortunately very, very tough to, um, to resolve, right? Um, just because, you know, they're, they're all very emotionally involved in the company. There's something very, very basic um, um, that, that is going on. I think the, the, the thing that we've seen can help is, is a coach that, that helps, um, you know, resolve founder conflicts, especially around communication issues. But sometimes the issues are much deeper. And then if they are much deeper, and, and even after some investment with coaching, you can't resolve them. Then I think the only solution is that, that you know, one, one founder leaves the company and, and moves on and does something else. It's just, uh, I've never seen it, it really work out um, or kind of being able to resolve these things, uh, you know, if, if, if after you've done kind of a serious investment of time and, and coaching resources, uh, I think at some stage you just have to pull the plug on, on one of the founders. Yeah, some of our founders have talked openly about um, either themselves or their co-founder coming to the realization that the company is now at a stage, it's scaling, it's growing, but their skill sets or their um, passions or things that they want to see achieved are no longer aligned with the company. Uh, But it is a a deep conversation that needs to be had. Uh, Also, internal realization that, that you are not ready to, or you're not now the good fit for that company. And it, it happens very. It happens very often around the tech co-founders, right? Because in the beginning, you are kind of the builder. You're the one that builds the whole product, perhaps with another co-founder uh, or kind of a first team member. But you know, you're it. You you like you in you you wrote every single line of code. And as the the tech scales, right? Suddenly, uh, you need to act like a VP of engineering, managing people, and that's very different from kind of writing every single line of code yourself and kind of being the master of the product, right? And so we've seen many, many times that especially technical co-founders love to move on or just take on an individual contributor role if they're okay with that, right? And uh, still be part of the company, but not in in, in such a prominent position anymore. I guess it's kind of like a selfish 
way? Do you, do you look at talent that's moving on within portfolio companies and see if you can integrate them into other portfolio companies? Is there a lot of cross-pollination or cross-collaborations uh, between portfolio companies? Um, I think I think it has happened before. Um, we we certainly you know kind of consider everybody who has been a version one founder a version one founder for forever, right? So they're they're part of the the family uh, for forever, and and you know sometimes they go on and start their own companies after they left the original company. Sometimes they go back to their their um, original founders and start a second company. Uh, we had one or two cases where they joined uh, another version one portfolio company. You know, it really depends a little bit on on kind of the dynamics. Um, overall, we think uh, you know there's a there's a real value of uh, you know thinking about the extended version one family even after they move on from their original company, and um, and we certainly love to keep in touch with all those entrepreneurs uh, in whatever way they're they're using their talents down the road if that is a second company or the original company or some other portfolio company um certainly uh that they're, they're part of the version one family yeah which circles back to the original conversation that we started with is that uh, version one is a business of its own and and you've had to build it and so your culture but also the community that you're building uh you're also looking at fueling future opportunities um and so the investment isn't just hey i'm going to put some money in your company it's uh, i want to be part of your journey but also want to build a longer term relationship with you and some of the key stakeholders in your business because it might help my business down the road that's correct that's correct and so going back to version one itself in in the time of COVID, you're you're not traveling as much. Um, how are you finding deals? How are you executing on deals? Um, how does the land how's the landscape of venture changed in the last uh, eight months now? Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, the first two months after COVID hit, like mid March to to mid mid May, I think people were a little bit puzzled. Uh, looking at their existing portfolio, figuring out how to do Zoom investing. Uh, I think a little version, we were always a distributed team. And while we preferred to meet entrepreneurs in person, sometimes just logistically it didn't work out, given that we invest across all of North America. And, uh, sometimes we just couldn't couldn't make it happen. So we, we, we were used to invest um, uh, on the basis of Zoom meetings um, before COVID hit. So I think we we found um, kind of our rhythm very, very quickly. And actually even in April did four deals uh, right as, as COVID was at its first wave and first height. Um, since then, you know, I think there's a few things that have happened. I mean, first of all, everybody has kind of adjusted to um, Zoom investing or most investors. And uh, uh, secondly, I think there's more entrepreneurs than ever that COVID has, you know, kind of COVID has created that break in their lives where they revalued again what they wanted to do and what job they were working on and, and where they wanted to spend their time. So I think we've seen more than ever entrepreneurs that, that are starting businesses that are excited about building their own startup uh, after they've reevaluated kind of their previous job and, and decided they, they want to become an entrepreneur. And then last but not least, I think that the theme of COVID is, is really uh, the acceleration of digitization and uh, everything has become uh, much, much more tech forward. Every single company has uh, become more, more tech forward. So 
it, it feels like there's there's more opportunities than ever. Uh, so it feels like the the perfect trifecta. There's uh, you know more entrepreneurs that that uh, start startups and work on important problems they care about. Um, there's generally a bigger opportunity in tech uh, than ever before, and then there's investors that have figured out. Uh, how to invest virtually and and over Zoom and and are ready to pl- deploy money and so I think especially the last uh, three to four months we've seen an incredible explosion in um, number of deals and valuations uh, and the speed of that that rounds get done uh, and it's probably has been as hot of a market as as ever before and are seeing a lot of activity outside of the main uh, business centers large cities New York. San Francisco, like what's happening in in Utah and Denver and um, other secondary markets, Vancouver. Yeah, I mean, um, so we we've been always um, kind of active across North America. While you know we had our, our core centers of the Valley, Seattle, Toronto, Waterloo, New York, we've invested uh, you know across many many geographies in 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 North America. So for us, it's like probably that the trend out. There's not nothing new, and we always we're, we're writing. I think what we see now, what what we see is like really interesting. It's just more distributed teams from the beginning on, right? Um, so when I when I just look at the last, uh, you know, six or seven deals we've done, probably half of them were distributed teams from the beginning on, and not as in um, we we're just remote first right now, but we. They'll all live in, in in one location, but truly distributed from the beginning on. And um, I think we haven't really seen as as many of those before COVID. Uh, and it, it, right now, it feels like uh, you know pe- people are really embracing uh, remote first, completely distributed teams. And well, we'll see how it's going to work out. It's like uh, finding product market fit is not always the easiest when you're distributed and not in in one location. But uh, Right now, it's certainly the, the dominant theme. And one of the other dominant themes that I've been seeing a lot uh, lately has been the exodus out of the Bay Area, out of San Francisco. But uh, what is your view on on the role San Francisco will play in the tech industry moving forward? Um, I don't want to hint to my answer, but uh, what what is your take on this? I think it's too early to tell what exactly going to stick uh, and not. I mean, first of all, I think we we definitely going to see more distributed workforces and companies being open open to employees that live wherever they want, right? And and that's certainly going to have a negative effect on San Francisco um, that just suffered off higher ends and and often kind of not not an ideal uh, standard of living um, with in, in in many aspects. Having said that, um, I think. There, there's something to be said for in-person communication um, in in really crucial situations, um, getting to product market fit, uh, making investment decisions for for a long-term uh, investments, um, kind of building a culture uh, early in a in in a in a journey of of a company. So, I still think San Francisco will play an incredible role in this whole in this whole system um i think at the edges certainly we'll, we'll see people go go off and, and live in other locations um but it might well be that a lot of the core 
creative processes, uh, the, the processes that re rely on person-to-person -person interaction will remain very much centered in, in the Bay Area. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think the people are undervaluing the value that uh, San Francisco brings to collaboration, strategic partnerships, but also investment. Uh, I think a lot of the leadership will continue to want to have some sort of presence in the Bay Area because um, uh, the ability to execute and make decisions is, getting, is that much greater in, in those hubs. And uh, that's not going to get replaced anytime soon. Boris, you've been really generous with your time. I want to kind of wrap this up with two questions here. The first one being for you as a founder, uh, or even maybe for the companies that you are investing in and the founders that you're working with, what is one tool or one app that uh, you've seen to be um, indispensable and, and really key to their success? Here's a completely controversial answer. No app, but a book or a walk uh, or run. Um, you know, I, I think, so I think the one thing that, that the virtual world around Zooms have uh, continued Zooms has shown like how efficient it can be, but also how incredibly draining it can be. And and for me, the one thing that I really have have, have made sure is after kind of learning it the hard way is this like having real world if that is nature, if that is conversations, if that is a book, whatever it is. Um, and getting away from from more apps and more uh, virtual interactions um, and more efficiency and more productivity. So, um, no no more apps for me. More more back to nature and and people and uh, real things. That's that's an awesome answer. Like one one of the themes that we have uh, at Launch VC is um, mental health is tied to physical health, and so you need to make sure you're taking care of both to be a highly efficient entrepreneur and be able to execute on all cylinders. So, no app is uh, is the recommendation. Uh, <laughs> last question for you is a piece of advice for entrepreneurs, uh, first time entrepreneurs, seasoned entrepreneurs doesn't matter. Somebody that's starting a business in today's world. What would be your advice for them? This is the, the, the new reality of COVID and, and social distancing. Somebody starting something new. Yeah, my, my advice is always just start. Don't think uh, too much about it. Um, I think there's still the tendency of really proving out every single, every single thing, um, trying to kind of come up with a business plan and think through all the edge cases. The reality is like, once you start in a certain area, you build things, you get feedback, you launch your, your, your business, um, you're, you're, you're in business and you're going to learn very quickly if you like it, if it's successful, if it works. Um, so my biggest, my biggest advice is always just start uh, and figure things out along the way instead of trying to figure out things before you even start. Extremely valuable piece of advice there. Uh, Boris, you've been really generous with your time. We've got tons of insight and information. Our audience is really going to benefit from uh, having watched this. But how can our audience benefit you? What's your call to action? What can our audience do for you? Um, build amazing companies. We love investing in companies. That's our business. We love meeting uh, passionate entrepreneurs that want to uh, build, build uh, a company for the long term. So go on and, and build these companies. I think the world needs more entrepreneurship. Uh, the, the world needs more crazy entrepreneurs that are trying to 
uh, achieve something that that seems unachievable for many, right? And so I think everybody who's listening to that, please become an entrepreneur and start something that uh, you care about and and build a great company. Go out and build cool companies, do great things. Boris, you're an amazing entrepreneur, amazing investor, and uh, the tech community is really um, uh, great to have you in, in it. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll uh, hopefully see you out at events and, and giving more talks and uh, investing in more great companies. Perfect. Hey, thanks for having me. That was fun. Launch Ventures is for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you enjoyed today's episode of Founder Journeys, please like, share, follow, and check out our LinkedIn bio for all the other good stuff.